You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's waiting for the kaboom. What happened to the kaboom? <laughs> there was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge-Huge. <laughs> yes, me and my Illudium Q36 explosive space modulator. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? Oh, I'm good. I am thinking about, like people who reach out to me after they've read something that I've written and generally uh, I get nice comments from people when they reach out and stuff but not always but mostly uh-huh. generally it's you know whenever you do anything sort of creative it's people who if they're going to be negative are generally negative about like identifying mistakes that you they think you didn't notice oh <laughs> yeah that's hilarious now whenever what if you say that like I, are they saying like spelling mistakes? Or are they talking talk uh, about plot hole devices? Plot holes, inconsistencies, like poor language choices, or effed up sentences. In some cases, it's like, hey, this you know, there's no period in this sentence where the other sentence starts. It's like, yeah, those, those are typographical errors. That's, that stuff happens. Or sometimes it's complaining like that the narrator of a podcast that was recorded of my, one of my stories like mispronounces a couple of words. Okay, I, it's not me. I'm not the guy reading it's beyond it. my reach. Yeah. 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 I just cashed the check. <laughs> check worked just fine. So, uh, yeah, I was listening to an interview with um, uh, Steve Hogarth, who is a singer from Marillion. And they had asked him what his favorite Marillion album was. And he was like, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't listen to our music. Whenever we play live, I usually say, you know, this song is from, what album is this from? Because I don't know what songs <laughs> are from which album. Right. He says, because I don't listen to our music. He goes, why would I want to go back and listen to every mistake I've ever made? Right. And that was such an eye-opener, like, as multimedia artists. You know, I draw. I do acting. I have a podcast. I do a lot of different things. And I hear every little mistake, but, you know, the person that isn't the creator isn't going to see as many. Right. Which is probably why parents are always disappointed in their kids because they <laughs> see every mistake. <laughs> they always, yeah. But at any rate, that made me feel a lot better about the stuff that I do. And one of the projects that I had been working on for like the past couple of months is I had been drawing the album covers from the four Kiss solo albums, you know? Yes. And But I've been doing them in my subtractive art. Yes. So I black out the canvas or the paper... Um, and then I draw with erasers. It's a real different way about going things, you know? Right. When I'm looking at my source material, I'm noticing that those, they're, I mean, they're excellent paintings, but I imagine the artist that did them must look at them and see every little mistake. I'm sure. You know? Yep. I didn't post them as 
I went along. I went to wait till I finished all four, and then I posted them. And then, like, somebody messaged me, and they were like, yeah, they came up pretty cool, but the nose is kind of messed up on this one, and the mouth is, like, less so on that one. And I'm pretty diplomatic, you know? Yes. I, I, I can I attest didn't, to that, yes. Yeah. I didn't say what was immediately on my mind, which was, hey, f*** off. But <laughs> I messaged him, and I said, do you honestly think you see more mistakes in my art than I do? And then it took him a little while to swallow that. And then he was like, oh, my God, I just realized what I said kind of like hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. I go, no, well, you didn't hurt my feelings. I shrug stuff like that off. I don't draw for applause. I draw because I like drawing. Right, right. So the guy didn't have a really like familiar voice that, that left you that message. Or was it in text? No, it's a text message. Oh, so you couldn't tell if it was like Gene Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill, <laughs> these pictures of yours are pretty good, but not great. Thanks, Gene. Appreciate it. Yeah. Actually, Gene's didn't come out as well as I wish it had. Aces came out about the best, which that would have been a good phone call again. Yeah, yeah. I really like the one you guys drew of <laughs> me there, the, uh, the Ace Frehley. Ah! You know, you know what would be great is if uh, you, you, you spit all over that Paul McCartney one because he's such a twerp. <laughs> <laughs> I got seven Me records Paul- that have come out in the last 17 years. He's had one. And even though, Ace, you're sober for like the last 20 years, you still manage to say Paul McCartney when it's Paul Stanley, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Hey, uh, speaking of records mm-hmm. and the like, before we get our show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received Trivia question. Hey, Jeff. All right. I'm ready. Bring it. Bring it on. All right. What was the first song on an American billboard chart uh, that was sung by a British artist? Okay. Okay. So American music chart, but it was actually a British artist. Yep. Who was the first person? First person to hit number one. Uh, American chart by a first British artist. non-American to hit. The first British guy to hit number one in the U.S. Yes. Got it. Done. Ready. All right. At the end of the show, I'm going to get it wrong, but you'll be you'll get to laugh and, and hear me randomly pick a British-sounding name out of the ether. Would you like a hint? Uh, no. Okay. No, no hints. Well, fine. We don't f- hints on this show, Bill. <laughs> you can't. All you right. can't lure me into saying, "Oh yeah, I'd love a hint." Then you go, "We don't do hints here." All right. Damn it! The nose is too long on your Gene Simmons. <laughs> but this is. The week beginning February the 19th, and if my records are correct, it is your turn to start. Indeed it is. So February 19th, 1963, a man is born in England who becomes a humongous star in the 1990s, and his name is Henry Olesigon Adiola Samuel. Do you recognize that name, Bill? I know who you're talking about because I have my notes open in front of me right over here, but... I always just thought that his stage name was kind of his name, but it's not. That's a mouthful. What was his name again? Henry Olusigan Adiola Samuel. Better known to the world as Seal. Yes, indeed. Better known to the world as Seal. British musician and face scar enthusiast. Yeah, yes. Married to Heidi Klum. I don't, I don't know if they're still married, but they were married for a while, if they aren't still married. Yep. I first encountered Seal's music when I was a disc jockey in college and the single for Crazy was released. 
I remember that, and I remember that song being on the radio. Yes. Crazy, and Crazy's a, a fine song. It's it's fine. But you had played a remix of that song. Yes. That was banging. That was, it was way, banging, way, yeah. way better than the uh, radio version, yeah. The Adorno Strength Mix. I still remember it because it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> So when Seal's second album came out, it didn't do well. There was a single off of the record that I don't even think it broke top 40. I think I just I just saw an interview with him and he said something about I think it's 65, which is not good. Right. And you know, the record company was like, yep, and, you know, dusting off their hands and looking for the next artist they could promote. And that was basically going to be the end of Seal's career. Then, like, a year later, two years later, or whatever it was, he gets a phone call from director Joel Schumacher, who was making one of his nipple-inflamed Batman movies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he he really liked the song and he wa- he called up Seal and he says, Yeah, I want to stick it in this one scene, like the you know, the love scene between Val Kilmer and Nicole Kidman. And then he calls him back and he was like, Yeah, that song didn't really work in that scene. So they stuck it in on the end credits. And yes. that song is the mega hit from Seal. Yes. Kiss from a Rose. Which tanked upon first release, but when it was used in the context of the movie blew up and that revitalized seal's career and that's why you and i know who he is now yeah or still remember who he is and he still gets right a little bit of uh you know tv celebrity airplay and still i think he still tours i think he still plays out yep and he still does that song and from what i understand (laughs) he's not a fan of his own song yeah but like michael cain says i didn't see the movie but i saw the house it paid for it's lovely (laughs) yes All right, so moving on to February the 20th, 1937. The first automobile-airplane hybrid is tested in Santa Monica, California. I like that they say tested and not successfully flown. Yeah. (laughs) That suggests to me that either the takeoff or the landing was really rough on that automobile-airplane hybrid. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it just looks like a suicide machine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like the concept. I like the idea. I like how people are thinking. But the population of the United States of America is, like, if it hasn't quadrupled, it's at least tripled since 1940. Right. There's a lot more cars on the road. You know, back then there was one car per family. Now there's, like, one car per person, you know, basically. Yes. So can you imagine the chaos that would ensue if that became a viable means of transportation i think about it and i just think about the personality of i'm not going to say americans but people in general like we already have a problem with road rage in this country uh, or in the world like who the hell wants to have air rage i don't want to you know have to dog fight my way to work because someone swooped in front of me 
or is on my six, as they say in flight sims, right? I, yep. I just don't think we have the temperament to make it possible for that to be a good idea. Uh, well, that's the thing is like, also, you would have to map out like airways. Yes. Like kind of like the same way they have streets that are mapped out. And, you know, take it from me. I have a license. I have my drone license. There's all sorts of rules and regulations um, about where you can fly, how high you can fly, how low you can fly. Mm-hmm like over private property and stuff like that the the air the air belongs to the government uh you know yes. nobody owns the airspace yes so yeah i don't think private flying is even possible unless you make it super expensive well i think part of the problem too is you know aside from having to have dedicated sort of air channels for these vehicles to fly in it's not like you could mm-hmm. hop in, even if you had the technology of today, a helicopter or an auto gyro or anything, and just sort of fly as the crow flies towards wherever you want to go. Because if something happens, you could crash into a house and kill people in yeah. a house or crash into a school, kill people in a school. So imagine like a standard fender bender. I've been in a couple of standard fender benders. You've been in a couple of standard fender benders, right? What do you do? You get yeah. out, look at the be- you look at the dent. You throw your arms up in disgust. You call the police sometimes, and then you yeah. take insurance information and give the insurance information to the other person. Whereas if you do that in a plane, someone's going to die. In fact, oh, probably yeah. everybody's going to die. I was an amazingly, an aggressively bad driver when I was you know, a teenager. Got into quite a few accidents, ate a tree or two, fender benders, you name it. Backed into a car in a parking lot. And drove off. And that guy probably never found out what happened to him. Right. <laughs> Imagine if you had been in a plane. Yeah. All of a sudden, eh, well, now that you can yeah, back up no in a plane. Off after that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. All right. Moving on to the 21st. February 21st, 1950. The first international pancake race, which we'll describe in detail in a minute, mm-hmm. is held in Kansas in a town called Liberal, Kansas. Do you know what the international pancake race is, Bill? Is it Rudy Tootie Fresh and or Fruity? <laughs> no. That would be the International House of Pancake Race. So the pancake race, it didn't start in the United States. It started in England in like the 1400s. And it's uh-huh. a it's a 415 meter run. I think it's meters. 415 meters. Uh, women are only allowed to participate. And they have to run and then flip a pancake at the end of the race. It's done once a year on Shrove Tuesday, which is, I guess, the pancake holiday of the Catholics. I believe Shrove Tuesday is like the same thing as Mardi Gras. It's the day before Ash Wednesday in the Catholic calendar. Okay. So they have to run this race and then flip a pancake at the end, and that's who wins? Yes. Well, they have to win the race and flip a pancake. So it's not just the fastest woman with a pan in her hand. She has to carry a pancake with her for the length of the race. And then flip it at the end. Kind of like the egg on the spoon race, in a way? Uh, I guess. It's a, you're not really worried about dropping the, the pancake, I think, the same way that you are about I dropping am. the egg. There's a lot more There's a lot more skill involved in doing the egg than there is in doing a pancake. Uh-huh. But at any rate, it's been around for a while, and this is the first time it was done on the same date in both places. I'm going to guess not at the same time because there's like a six-hour time difference. Between that yeah. part of Britain and that part of Kansas, so oh right. By the time we're over there making our pancakes, they're they're ready for the uh, 
tea and biscuits, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's bedtime. Bedtime for Bonzo. Yeah. <laughs> so also being on the same day as Mardi Gras, uh, I don't know, man. Pancakes are great and all, but Mardi Gras seems like a, a, a way more of a party atmosphere. Yeah, I would think uh, it's there's, there's yeah. a lot more live music <laughs> than there is yeah, in the, the international pancake race. Yeah, the music, music and beads oh plenty. All right, so like moving on to the twenty second, we have a celebrity, another celebrity birthday. I'm gonna say a name, and people are gonna say who, and then we're gonna say who she is, and everyone's gonna be like, "Ooh, I like her." So February the twenty second, nineteen sixty six, Rachel Dratch is born, and oh, Rachel nice. Dratch, yeah. She was on Saturday Night Live. She yes. is exceptionally funny, and everybody's going to know her best, I think, from the Debbie Downer sketches. <laughs> Some of my favorite sketches of Saturday Night Live, yes. In fact, I think my all-time favorite sketch of Saturday Night Live is a Debbie Downer sketch. Is that the one at Disney World? It's the one at Disney World with <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. And I, I watched that one live, the rare times that I used to watch Saturday Night Live live. And I, I, I laughed so hard I was like dizzy, like fainting, fainting quality dizzy. It was so funny. Yeah, because everybody that was involved in the sketch had the hardest time holding it together. Yep. I mean, Jimmy Fallon's there, and Jimmy Fallon always, you know, can he could never hold it together. No, but uh, Horatio Sands. Do you remember he was like wiping the tears out of his eyes with pancakes? Yeah, oh my god. I I that's that may be where I lost a few brain cells to lack of oxygen to my brain because I was laughing so hard. Was watching him dab his eyes, dab the tears yep. out of his eyes with a pancake, a Mickey Mouse shaped pancake. It was yep. so funny. And Rachel Dratch, even her, who's usually pretty good about these sort of things, she couldn't hold it together. No. Even she, who, yeah, she's she, supposed to be Debbie Downer, and she's like, you can see her like start laughing and smirking and stuff. It was so funny. That's what it's the rare sketch I go back and watch like every five or six months, and I still find it like uproariously funny. I'm actually not huge on Will Ferrell movies, but I did like him when he was on Saturday Night Live, and they used to do sketches together where they were like in a hot tub. Oh, yeah, like I was just thinking about that one. Yeah, the, the, romantic, the, romantic, the romantic couple. couple. Yeah. Do you go on love walks? Super, super creepy to whoever was with them. Yep. Uh, yeah, that was a funny sketch. All right, so she's actually, she's been in a few movies, you know, probably just like little bit parts and stuff like that. She's been in a few Adam Sandler movies, like Click and Just Go With It. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a bit part two. She was also in the Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse animated movie. It's just a, a bit part, but she did voices for that, too. She was Miss Webber. Okay. I don't know who that is in that movie. I, I saw the movie in the theater, and it ended on a cliffhanger, and I was mad about it. So. <laughs> um, I All don't right. remember either. So. All right, moving on to the 23rd. February 23rd, 1912. Possibly the greatest invention in the history of soda drinking was invented, and that is the wax-covered paper cup known to the world as a Dixie cup. Oh, Dixie cups. Yes. I, I mean, I just remember having them like around the house and stuff. I don't, I don't think I've used a Dixie cup in a bazillion years. Yeah, I'm going to assume they still make them. They, they, they do. My mom put up a dispenser when I was a little kid because we had seen them on TV and we're like, we got to get one of those. And sh she basically said, I'm not buying any more refills for this. 
So you better use these, you know, carefully in the bathroom. Yep. And every five minutes for that day, me or my brothers went to get a drink of water in a one ounce <laughs> cup and then throw the cup in the yep. trash. And my mom never bought any more Dixie cups after that. We were Dixie. We were Dixie free. I was hoping you were going to say it's is it still there. It's still like grafted to the wall. <laughs> oh, it might, it might very well be. I don't know what glue they used on those things, but if you took it off, it took sheetrock with it. Oh, <laughs> so uh, it was just basically as a, a paper cup with a very thin coat of wax on it. I remember that like McDonald's used to use that kind of process too. Yes. I remember going to McDonald's to get like a, you know, and get a soda and just like scratching the wax off with my thumbnail, but it's not like that anymore. Nope. For a while, there was a trend of using styrofoam, but we realized that that was going to significantly shorten our reign on earth. So <laughs> those all got, those don't get used anymore. And now it's, there's more paper cups and things that are being used, but they're not wax coated. And I think that's because the paper's a different type, grain, something. I don't know how they measure the thickness and our hardness of paper, but it seems to be bare paper more now often than not. And if there is a coating, it's only on the inside, and it's generally some sort of sprayed in, like plastic or something. It's probably not good for you now that I think about it. All I know is that Wendy's had a completely different technology because if you had a McDonald's cup in your car and you left it like overnight... That's fine. You get yourself a Wendy's cup, you pull it up out of the cup holder, and it is everywhere all over your car. <laughs> yeah. Those things had a half-life of like about two hours. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the way that paper cups are meant to be, right? They're supposed to be biodegradable. So they need to degrade fast. It's not like the – you I'm mentioned the ones, from, the ones from the – Well, I mean, how often do you leave a cup in your car for two days? You'd or be surprised. Two hours? Yeah, I would. I, actually, I wouldn't. Yep. Because I've done the same thing. Yes. Wendy's made their cups out of cotton candy. All right. <laughs> Moving on to the 24th. Big favorite band of mine, and I know they're a favorite band of yours, too. <laughs> hey, take it easy now. Oh, that's clever. So on February the 24th, 1976, the Eagles' Greatest Hits album is certified platinum. And this is a big like Red Letter Day, because that is the first album to be certified platinum by the RIAA. So that means one million, one million sold. Million with prior an to that, they, Yeah, prior to that, they only had gold records. And then, you know, once people started selling millions, they were like, oh, we, we got to make a, another category. I think gold was 500,000 copies and platinum is one million. I'll take your word for it. I never really looked up how many records it takes to get to any of those now that I think about it. Oh, wow. The thing is with this Eagles Greatest Hits, it is actually the best-selling album of all time, which is astounding to me because as we were joking around before the show, the Eagles is not a band that neither you or I go and like look for and search out, especially the early stuff. Yeah, this is a record of songs from 71 to 75. Uh-huh. Which is the country California Eagles before Joe Walsh joined them and made them into more of a rock and roll band. So this album uh, has literally outsold uh, Thriller, if you can believe that. I can but, believe that. Yeah. But because Thriller is a collection of original songs and this is a greatest hits, there's kind of like a little asterisk there. So even though this has been certified, are you ready for this? 38 times platinum. 
Oof. This has sold 38 million copies. That means one in every 10 Americans owns a copy of this. I'm That's, not one of those 10. No, neither am I. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in the nine. The nine that doesn't yeah, this, have it. Yeah, there's seven other people, and then somebody has a copy of it, yeah. But yeah, one in ten people in America own a copy of this album. That's, I can't get my head around that, Jeff. Yeah, it's it's that's a big Why would you want to sure. listen to Desperado on your own time? <laughs> Before 71, they were, they were the touring band that worked with Linda Ronstadt after the uh-huh. Stone Ponies ceased to exist. And I okay. guess when they went out on their own, like they dragged a bunch of her fans with them as well, and they just became really popular in that period where American music was the softest, wishy-washiest, least exciting crap that has ever charted. Yeah. 1971 and 1975. But it's pre-disco, it's post-hippy-dippy and like the soul era, and it just... It's pretty obvious that this album is why punk rock happened, yeah. Oh, one of them, yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, what you were saying about them and Linda Ronstadt is, do you remember the band The Hooters? And we dance, yes. and we dance. And, yep. They were to Cindy Lauper what the Eagles were to Linda Ronstadt. Oh, okay. Yep. One thing, the Hooters don't sell 38 million yeah, I was gonna copies. Say, the, the, greatest, the Hooters' greatest hits is a single, but it's only one side. Yep. <laughs> the and other side. 38 <laughs> copies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and let's wrap up the week. February 25th, 1943, the Handsome Beetle, I think is how he was known, or the Quiet Beetle, but he was the quiet one of the Beatles, the Quiet One. George Harrison is born in Liverpool, England. So, 43, so that puts him right around my, uh, between my dad and my mom as far as ages go. Yeah, interestingly enough, well, you know, we make a lot of jokes about Kiss and we talk about the Beatles a lot, and there's a lot of parallel lines between the two. You have the two main guys that write the majority of the songs, Paul and John, and the beat, uh, right. Kiss, it's it's uh, Paul and Gene. You know, that the, right there, it's very similar, uh, you know, to the ears. And then the lead guitar player, who didn't sing all that many songs, later on in both of their tenures in the band, you know, had some of the best songs. And I maintain that, you know, he kind of showed up late for the dance, but George Harrison's something off of Abbey Road yeah. is one of the best Beatles songs in their entire catalog. I agree. It's that's so a fantastic good. piece of music. Yes. And yes. also, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, that song is beautiful. Yep. He's underrated. He definitely is. And when the Beatles ceased to be a band and all four of them started doing solo work. Yep. He put out some really good stuff before he did the concert for the people of Campuchia, like yep. the song that ultimately got him sued, My Sweet Lord, because it's a Ronette song, kind of. Almost, yeah. But like, as far as, you know, I still listen to classic radio, I can guarantee you I'll hear at least two George Harrison songs a day on terrestrial and satellite radio. Guaranteed, if I have it on for more than two hours. Whereas I might hear McCartney once, I won't hear John Lennon at all. And I'll hear Ringo Starr 14 times. <laughs> so that's kind of how it breaks down. All right. Uh, so before we get on to our worst movie ever, we do have our weird holiday for the week. February the 20th in the Northern Hemisphere. It's in August in the Southern Hemisphere. But because we live in the Northern Hemisphere, 
we will be celebrating on February the 20th, Hootie Hoo Day, Jeff. <laughs> what exactly is Hootie Hoo Day? I have no goddamn idea. I have never heard of this. I'm kind of like looking at it now. So on the cold winter day of February the 20th, people are to go out at noon, wave their hands over their head, and chant, Hootie Hoo! And if the weather is really gross and you can't go outside, get on the telephone and call people and say, Hootie Hoo! into the phone. Let me tell you something, Jeff. The 20th is a Tuesday this week. Don't you dare. Don't you dare call me and say Hootie Hoo! So basically, it's a day to... Uh, what, what you're supposed to do is just kind of like act like a fool. And it's because... We're the the last stretch of you know the last month of the uh, the winter, you know spring's yep. one month away and it's kind of kind of meant to like kick the jukebox of the winter blahs. Yeah, that's that's it. It's, it's hootie hoo day, Jeff. Hootie hoo. There was a fun song that they used to use on uh, in like Space Ghost Coast to Coast called Hootie Hoo, which this holiday immediately made me think of. Oh, it made me think of Hootie and the Blowfish. It also <laughs> future it all, part contest, contestants in our worst song ever. It also made me want to call up my ex girlfriend and say, "Can I have my goddamn hoodie back, hoodie, whatever?" <laughs> so uh, you know what you don't see a lot of in the winter. It's gonna be really bad for. Do you, you ever get thunder snow up in New Hampshire? We do. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it's gonna be. Yeah, you really get lightning, thunder, and lightning in the uh, in the winter time. There's a reason for it. I don't know what it is, but there's only one thing worse than thunder snow, Jeff. The worst movie ever. Uh, Jeff, honestly, you're gonna have to do like eighty percent of the the talking over here because okay. this movie that we watched <laughs> this week, this movie was called. Ninja Thunderbolt, not to be confused with Ninja Thunder Snow. Ninja Thunderbolt from director Godfrey Ho. Uh, (laughs) This came in as a suggestion from my former best friend, Jeff (laughs) (laughs) McLarchie. Okay, so uh, let me put all my cards on the table when it comes to Ninja Thunderbolt and Godfrey Ho. Okay. I collect Godfrey Ho movies, so if I see... Ninja anything. When I'm looking through used DVDs, I pretty much buy it because All right. they are insane and really funny. Okay, so I know what Godfrey Ho movies are because I've been friends with you since high school. <laughs> yes. But the casual listener might not know. Nope. On paper, this concept is amazing. In practice, less so. But please explain <laughs> yeah. to our less, uh, please explain to the listeners what Godfrey Ho does. All right, so Godfrey Ho is uh, the leader of uh, a company called Transworld Entertainment, which is a Hong Kong filmmaking, and I'm saying that with air quotes, company that was really, really successful in the late 1970s through the middle 1980s and early 1990s. Uh And his style of filmmaking is he takes some, it's either an unfinished Chinese movie or a Thai movie or sometimes it's a Finnish Thai movie or Chinese movie, shoots some ninja scenes around it, strips out the soundtrack and all the vocal tracks, and then writes a new script to incorporate whatever ninja foolishness he shot in one park, specifically in Hong Kong. Generally, there's there's an American actor who is what anchors the film and made them possible to get into U.S. video stores in the 1980s. 
And in the case of Ninja Thunderbolt, it is Richard Harrison. Richard Harrison is an actor who you, if you've watched any length of like Chinese Kung Fu movies or whatever from the 1980s, you'll bump into him because he's in a bunch of them. He's one of the few uh, Americans who made a career out of being in Chinese movies. He was in a Jackie Chan movie. He's He's been in a couple of things. So, uh, fun fact, Ninja Thunderbolt is not a Jackie Chan movie, but that didn't stop Godfrey Ho from putting Jackie Chan's name on the movie posters and the boxes for the video cassettes. It says Jackie Chan is in this movie. And, it, and it's in the opening credits, but it's like the 13th name that, <laughs> that they show on screen. Um, oh, is it? I didn't catch yeah. that. It's in the opening credits too. Yeah, it's in the opening. Yeah, it's like 13, 13 or fourteen names down. So it's obviously not Jackie Chan, but it's Jackie Chan. So whoever <laughs> whoever that Jackie Chan is, he's like the Wish dot com Jackie Chan of Jackie Chans. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so what he would do is he'd he'd cut, get rid of this the soundtrack and the vocal track, and then he would write a script around whatever he had for action and try and tie it all together to make a coherent story. It never succeeds to make a coherent no. story in any of his films. In this film, particularly, here's this. This is the, one of the super standard Godfrey Ho films, and I'll, I'll lay it out for you. There's a cop who's also a ninja. There's references to a ninja empire, right? And then there's some fiddickery going on in the ninja empire that gets the cop kind of back involved in it. And then it cuts to this other film where there's some some crime that's taking place that's tied peripherally to whatever ninja foolishness they were talking about in the opening scenes with the ninjas yeah. that runs for almost the whole film with occasional interspersed cuts of ninjas looking around trees or from behind desks until the end of the film where Richard Harrison fights other ninjas and they have a kung fu fight and he kills them. In right. this particular film... The thing that ties together the Ninja Empire foolishness and the Chinese Kung Fu movie that makes up the bulk of the story is <laughs> one of the ninjas named Shima steals a jade horse from the Ninja Empire and gives it to these two criminals. That's where the ninja stuff ends. The rest of the film is a police officer named Harry who works for Richard Harrison trying to get the jade thing back from Shima and the to the mob boss couple that are running this drug dealing scam out of Hong Kong. In the midst of this, there are ninjas. So as I've talked about before, I work at a Renaissance fair and my friend Jed and I had this running gag because ninja, the, the, the ninja thing took place around the same time as the Renaissance fair. We're talking Asian culture, 1500s, 1600s. That's when the ninjas were around. So my friend Jed and I at the Renaissance Fair would always say to each other, hey, did you see that ninja over there? <laughs> of course not. You cannot see a ninja. Right. So one day, somebody showed up at the fair dressed up as a ninja, right? Yes. Right era, wrong continent, but that's fine. So right. I said to Jed, I was like, dude, you see that ninja over there? He goes, no, of course not. I go, no, right there. And I point to get this dude. He goes, oh, my God, that is the worst ninja I've ever seen. <laughs> so every time in this movie somebody shows up dressed up as a ninja, I'm sitting on my couch going, oh, my God, that's the worst ninja I've ever seen. I had to watch this movie in half an hour increments because I just couldn't. 
So I got my sheets over here broken up into three. And I don't know if that was for better or for worse. Because whenever I started watching the movie on, we'll say, day two, it was I. It made no coherent sense with the first day at all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So here's my notes. A couple of things that I wrote down. One, every time that there's a car chase in this movie, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a car chase. Anytime there's a car, a bicycle, a razor scooter, <laughs> roller skates, whatever. Yeah, roller skates later on. Whatever the case may be, if those wheels are turning. And I'm talking about taking a, a right-hand turn at a stop sign or 90 miles an hour down a, uh, a racetrack. If those wheels are turning, those wheels are screeching. Every time the wheels go, <laughs> like every time. There was this car chase. Of course there was. Yes. One of the bad guys or whatever, the car like goes off of a cliff and dumps it into the river. And then later yes. on, they're at the police station. This is like one of three of the best lines of dialogue in this movie. I, I, I wrote it down because it was so funny to me. He goes, we found the car. We did not find the suspect. <laughs> we think he may have escaped. You think he may have escaped? <laughs> it's either that or he's like a shapeshifter. He turned into a trout. We found him in the glove compartment. That's the hallmark of these films is, is it, it doesn't make any difference if there's no continuity. Because you're just going to record dialogue over it. It doesn't make any difference if the things don't sort of make narrative sense. Mm -hmm. Because eh, in a second, there's going to be another karate fight anyway. And uh, that's sort of what happens for the like the middle third of this film. Is It's a, either a car chase or there's a kung fu fight going on oh, between the no. main characters. You're leaving out possibly the best part of this movie. <laughs> in the second third of this movie is a very long, dragged-out sex scene. <laughs> and I watched this on YouTube, okay? There's a little bit of nudity on YouTube. Usually, the you know, it gets shut down or, you know, uh, censored or pulled or whatever. This sex scene was nudity, the kind that you <laughs> usually have to pay, you know, it's usually behind a paywall. It was more nudity than you get on a, a, a 1980s Friday night at midnight on Cinemax. There were all kinds of pieces and parts of people showing in this. Oh, yeah. There was one girl that I, as I referred to it, it looked like she was taking my picture. This other guy looked like he had a, a, a very uh, healthy, no hernia you know, set of uh, equipment over there. And then yep. they're both completely naked. He's lying on top of her. So visualize this in your, in your brain, guys. She's... On her back, he's on top of her, and they're making out, and they're making out, and all of a sudden, he, his entire body, starts turning counterclockwise, and I'm like, whoa, 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 this is getting, and then it cuts to another scene. Yeah, like I said, normally this stuff is behind a paywall, right? If you're not, like, ready for it, you might find your brain going like, that's a scrotum. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what? Wait, wait, what? Did I, did I move to Pornhub? Yep. I don't remember being on Pornhub, but yeah. Yeah, normally one doesn't see balls from this angle on YouTube, yeah. <laughs> no, and that's that's another thing that's like part of the Godfrey Ho catalog of fun, is there generally tends to be some few minutes of every film that has uh, an unnecessarily gr grotesque sex scene in it <laughs> like this one. And it's just shot with like one camera just staring at the bed. 
And that's like three minutes of that. And I've seen more titillating oatmeal box containers than the scene in this film. Because he overdubs all of the sound. So you're, you've got people like you and I right now in, in little sound booths, just like overdubbing going, ah, ooh, ah. And I think as you, as you mentioned when we first talked about this, there are only two people that do all of the voices in this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one woman and one guy. Right. Another funny line that I had written down uh, outside of the sex scene. So there's this like drug deal that goes on and the guy says, this is a pound of pure. I'm, I'm going to guess pure heroin, not pure you know beef. This is uh, ag- right. Angus. You'll love it. So <laughs> it's, he, it's, it's ivory soap. It's yeah, pure, 99.9% yeah. pure. He holds up this like, it's about the size of a book of, uh, box of matches, you know? And he's like, uh, this is 100% pure. Give me the money tomorrow. That'll be fine. Because that's how drug deals go down. <laughs> yeah, the worst gangsters ever. Yeah, we're on the sure. honor system around here. Pats him on the back. boy. Now, in the third, uh, third of this movie, the last half hour, which was honestly the most entertaining, but also I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. There right. is a good guy and a bad guy. And they both look exactly like Didi Ramon. And they're <laughs> Yeah, they do. And they're both wearing very similar sunglasses. Like one guy's kind of looks like Jim Jones and the other one's like aviator glasses. They're both in cars <laughs> that are yep. both white and very similar makes and models. One is a Toyota and one's a Datsun. Yep. And they both have a girl in the car with them. So it's impossible to tell. And like we just said, they're both overdubbed by the same person. So you got Didi Ramon chasing Didi Ramon in a white car, by a white car, with sunglasses and a girl in the car. You cannot make heads or tails out of what happens. And and depending on on which of the jump cuts you're seeing this car chase progressing through, (laughs) the cars actually change. So they start off, they're both white. Then one's green and one's white. Then one's white and one's blue. And then they're both white again. Then there's a green one again. And it's like he's just stitching it together with pieces of car chase from from other movies <laughs> that are all shot on the same street. So there's a little tiny bit of continuity where they're riding by, but yeah. that's it. Meanwhile, in a completely different movie, there's a chase scene on a ski slope. How this happened, I don't know. They're like all of a sudden you're in the uh, they're, they're all skiing and chasing each other. So for briefly, uh, what happened was they got found. the the two The gangster couple got found out that they were selling drugs in Hong Kong. So they took off to Japan, and it was while they were in Japan skiing that they got chased chased down by the ski ninjas. I, why I remember that as a plot point is unknown, but yep. it's it's in there. Another funny line that I wrote down, which must be somewhere around here, the guy says to the girl. You're not stupid enough to fall for that. And she says, oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, it's demonstrating that she is stupid enough to fall for that. <laughs> I, I like... I, 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 love the, I love the end of the film where... Oh, don't get to the uh, end. Because coming up is now absolutely the best part of the movie. The hero in question, Didi Ramon, is now driving... This car that looks like a kid did it for science class. I don't know. Yeah. 
It, it's the thing looks like it could get lapped by a good golf cart. It just it's comedic. <laughs> it's got two wheels yes. in the front, one wheel in the back, and enough room for like one person and a sandwich bag. That's it. Right. And, and he is being chased by eight or nine ninjas on roller skates. I want to say that sentence again because it was so much fun. He is being chased yes. by eight or nine ninjas on roller skates. And if you watch that close enough, you'll see that the person in the car, even though he's wearing sunglasses and has Didi Ramon hair, is not the same actor that's in the Chinese crime movie that makes up the bulk of the film. It's a third Didi Ramon? It's a third Didi Ramon. It's the Didi Ramon that was shot by shot on film by Godfrey Ho himself oh. to tie together the ninjas with the crime movie. That's why the ninjas are chasing him on roller skates because it's, it's, it's almost not exactly right after that, but very close to after that, that Richard Harrison goes out to walk through the park where he's accosted by the ninja girl who says, you have to find the ninja empire. You must die or commit Harry Carey. Another great line. You must die or commit Harry Carey. Um, yes. The end result is both the same there, kid. What am I going to do? Yep, it, so, it ends like, the oh, same. We got two and choices. Then, you can have chickpeas or gabonzo beans. Choice is yours. <laughs> it's all yours, right? Any color you want, as long as it's black. Again, a hallmark of Godfrey Ho is the insane way that any of the characters get into their ninja jammies. And in this film, like in all of the other films, he does like some weird hand movement thing like magic and then there's a puff of smoke and then out of the puff of smoke comes the main character dressed as a ninja with a headband on that says ninja across the top of it. <laughs> He's also in yellow. So yellow is like, if you watch enough Godfrey Home movies, yellow and white are always the hero ninja colors and then red, black, and green are the villain ninja co uh -huh. co colors and it's just something that's a constant throughout and they always wear a headband that says ninja. As if we didn't know. <laughs> so the fight goes down to this guy who I kept thinking he looked like the dude from Halloween 3. The guy with the yep. mustache. And this other girl who, I, I don't know, I didn't remember yeah. seeing her in any other part in the movie. But they're going to fight to the death. He wins the fight but doesn't kill her. And she's like, right. you didn't kill me. And he's like, eh, it wasn't really a thing. And then yeah. she commits Harry Carey. I think. Yes. And then the movie ends. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what happens. And the movie ends. He doesn't even, it, it like literally shows her turn and look at him and then slump over. And that's when the, the, the end comes up. So she's actually in the very beginning of the film when they're talking about the Ninja Empire and they're all doing the chanting, which yep. starts out with like, we must adhere to the laws of the Ninja Empire or else death or Harry Carey. And that's that's sort of where you you first see her, but she doesn't appear again until the very end. Yep. Uh, so if we're gonna go and rate this on one to ten chuds, one being very enjoyable and ten being completely unwatchable, I can't even rate this. I can't. This, this <laughs> it it's goofy. I like the fight scenes because it seemed like every hit, every like throw connected. It was like yeah. watching a Rocky fight. Like every every throw is a knockout punch. The the fight scenes were kind of fun. Of course, the roller skating ninjas were fun. Uh, I just couldn't make heads or tails out of anything. I can't even rate this. Um, whatever the conversion rate is between like yen and chuds, I, I'm going to give this 100,000 chuds. I don't know. <laughs> 
Uh, I also like the kung fu fights that are in this. They're really well put together. And there's another aspect of the plot that it's not that important, but there's a girl named Claudia who's like an insurance adjuster who's also a kung fu master mm-hmm. that beats the, the hell out of a bunch of guys. Um, who I thought she was hilarious. Um, yeah, it was hilarious, right? On a scale of 1 to 10 chuds with 1 being the, the, the best and 10 being the worst, I have to give this movie a 1 chud. I own this movie on DVD. I bought this movie on purpose, and I've watched it multiple times before we got ready to do this show. <laughs> like in the in the intervening years since I purchased it, yeah, I love Godfrey Ho movies. They are so go- dorky and stupid, and funny. They're just uh, baffling to watch and a lot of fun. All right, before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well received trivia question. Hey Jeff, what oh, was? All right, here we go. The first British artist, who was the first British artist to hit number one on an American Billboard chart? I'll tell you why I know this after I tell you the answer that I'm going to give you, assuming okay. that I'm correct. All right. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to tell you that the answer is Vera Lynn. I don't know who she is. Uh, you don't remember Vera British. Lynn? Does anybody here remember I, Vera Lynn? I can remember Vera Lynn, yeah. And that's why I know the name. Because at some point in the relatively recent past, when I was listening to The Wall, I thought, this must be a real person. Roger Waters always puts real people in his song. So I Googled who she was. And I was like, oh. And one of the factoids that comes up when you look up who she is, Mm -hmm. aside from the fact that she was really famous in England, too, is that she was the first British uh, person to get a number one record in the U.S. Yep. In like 1950 or 53 July like the 4th, 1952. And what makes it even more curious is the song is in German. It's Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Auf Wiedersehen, Sweetheart by Vera Lynn. And if you watch the movie, The Wall, uh, the movie Pink Floyd, The Wall, it starts mm-hmm. out with the, the hallway with the... The maid cleaning yeah. the hotel room. Yep. The song that's playing is a song called The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot, and that's by Vera Lynn. Oh, I had no idea. Yep. And that's why you uh, listen to the Swibley podcast. For every yeah, factoid about Pink Floyd why. the Wall you could possibly want to know about. Yes, and if you ask me this same question next week, I'm not going to remember. Right. So you can use it as a trivia question next week if you need to. I will. All right, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends because friends don't let friends listen to those other podcasts. <laughs>